And welcome back, everyone. This is episode nine of the David Hahn cast. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. I did. Uh, I had 30 people over, and we were eating off each other's plates and drinking out of each other's glasses because fuck you, Gavin Newsom, and your 10-person limit. You don't want 10 people in my house? Fine. We had 10 people in each room. We're all naked. So go fuck yourself. Anyways, I hope all of you enjoyed your holiday. So I want to start off by talking about... um, I was listening to the Megyn Kelly show. She's got a podcast now. And she had uh, an episode where... Um, She had Glenn Lowry and Coleman Hughes on. And um, so I kind of want to touch up on that because I have some opinions regarding uh, the topic of discussion between those two. Now, Coleman Hughes revealed that he did vote for Joe Biden. But I got to say, Hughes's reasoning for voting for Joe Biden was weak. Um probably bordering on stupid, as a friend of mine said. Uh, it's one thing to not vote for Trump, but it's another thing to to take positive action and actually choose Biden. I don't think personality should heavily factor into voting for a president um, because he didn't mention anything related to policy. Now, as Lowry stated, uh, it's not about Trump, and he's right. Uh, Trump is... Trump is really just a representation of a cultural backlash of the excesses of the left. And that has been sort of culminating during the Obama administration and sort of hit a crescendo uh, during Trump's first administration. Um, Now, I believe the culture has degraded to the point that it took a personality like Trump to galvanize a base that could attempt to swing back this pendulum. Now, I have this saying that goes, the longer any problem is left to persist, the more extreme and costly that solution becomes. And Trump was that extreme and costly solution. Um, You know, Trump's boorish behavior cost him the the country club Republican vote, uh, but... In exchange, he gained in every other minority demographic. That was the highest share of the minority vote since 1960. Uh, I guess he's the worst white supremacist ever. Now, the GOP had been playing lip service to gaining the minority and working class votes for a long time, as long as I can remember following politics. Now, Trump comes along, and he does it in five years, being exactly who he is. Now, the Democrats had also been paying lip service to those same groups, but they've been undercutting their industries while doing it. So, Trump being the astute opportunist that he is, uh, he played the populist angle, and to a great deal of success. Now, for all his faults, of which there are many... Um, Trump did reshape the GOP into a, some sort of populist working class party, and he garnered 74 million votes along the way. Now, that's the second most ever and the most ever by an incumbent. 
Now, remember, Obama lost about 4 million votes from 2008 to 2012, and Trump gained 11 million. Now, even in a loss, I think Trump would still be the most powerful voice in the GOP. Now, he would be sort of a kingmaker, really, uh, in who he endorses. Now, if, if the GOP kept with this populist blueprint, they could continue to improve in that share of the electorate and quite possibly win back the people who were put off by Trump's idiosyncrasies. Now, this, this is a big if, mind you. Now, my cynicism won't allow me to believe the GOP won't go back to being the same spineless limpics they've been for, well, really, again, as long as I've been following politics. This is why I have a hunch that Trump or the GOP would sooner dump Trump, uh, feeling that they've pretty much gotten all they can out of his administration and thinking that they've got nothing more to gain from his presence um, and uh, only to squander it by returning to the party of Romney and McCain. Well, the much-anticipated Roy Jones Jr. Mike Tyson fight happened this past weekend. Now, I did buy the Tyson-Jones match, and I got to say, it was really fun seeing those two go at it in the ring. Uh, it was probably maybe 20 years too late, but... You know, I think Mike Mike looks looked like he had still had a lot of his old speed and snap uh, to his punches. Um, on the other hand, Roy looked like he was fighting underwater compared to his old self. But I think that has a lot to do with the fact that he's much heavier than his prime fighting weight. Um, because the thing is, his style doesn't necessarily translate well to being as heavy as he came into the ring. Um, oh yeah, he's also 51. Now Tyson looked great and weighed in at 220, and that's just about five or so pounds over his fighting weight when he was putting guys on their necks in the 80s. Now, uh, <laughs> one of the undercards was, uh, Jake Paul versus Nate Robinson. Now, uh, that shit was straight up embarrassing for Nate. I haven't heard of this fight until maybe last week, so I know nothing of its background, but I can only guess that Jake Paul, being the focus of much hate, uh, being an internet personality, that he probably shit-talked Nate Robinson into fighting him. Uh, problem is, um, Paul is legitimately a professional boxer now. Nate Robinson probably started training this summer. I heard he had three months worth of training. Now, that is a recipe for disaster for the basketball player. So I've been reading social media comments, and sports fans are calling uh, for several other athletes to step into the ring with Paul. Now, we need to cut that shit out. Like I said, Paul is now a professional boxer. He trains as one. Uh, if you put two dudes who don't know how to fight into a ring, generally you would bet on the more physically gifted guy, or the black guy, whatever, whichever one, right? Um, but if one of them is an actual professional fighter, uh, the basketball player is getting his ass beat. You know, have these people not watched NBA games? Have they not seen how these guys throw punches during games? I'm like, fucking stop it. 
fighters don't challenge NBA players to a one-on-one game or a dunk contest. Like These people need to quit trying to serve up NBA players to people who punch people in the face for a living. So more sports news out of college football. I don't know how many of you follow sports um, because, you know, I've probably got like seven people listening. So I don't know what the split is on who follows uh, sports at all. But it's a woman by the name of Sarah Fuller became the first woman to participate in a Power 5 football game. Now, I use the word participate because that's exactly what she did. Uh, Did she catch a pass? Did she make any tackles? No. Uh, She served as the Vanderbilt place kicker for a second-half kickoff when they were down 21-0. Now, this is from the ESPN article. Uh, Fuller, a senior goalkeeper on Vanderbilt's SEC championship soccer team, sent the low kick to the 35-yard line where it was down by Missouri. She went on to say, uh, the fact that I can represent all the girls out there that have wanted to do this or thought about playing football or any sport, really, it encourages them to be able to step out and do something big like this. It's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty big. She kicked the fucking ball 30 yards and proceeded to walk right the fuck off the field to the sideline. The opposing team fielded the ball and made it no attempt at a return. That doesn't even sound like a real play. That's it. I guess history was made. Are you shitting me? This isn't history. This is embarrassing. In no way did she compete in any meaningful sense of the word. I mean, this was an outright publicity stunt, and it did absolutely nothing for women in sports. Like You don't elevate women in any field by setting the bar so low as to trigger a celebration merely by their unearned unearned presence. It's patronizing and it's insulting to the spirit of sport. Now to top it off, Fuller was awarded SEC Special Teams Player of the Week. The only thing special about this whole thing is that it's fucking retarded. I didn't know the Make-A-Wish Foundation set up charity events for kids who weren't dying. Now, this reminds me of when the when a basketball team subs in their autistic equipment manager towards the end of a game for garbage time. And so the opposing team, they know what's up, and what they do is they just leave them open, and then the kid proceeds to drain a few three-pointers. This is just like that, except it requires skill to make three-pointers. Right? I think Oscar Pistorius could have made a better kick. Ivan Rishi felt compelled to give a second-half speech uh, because the players weren't cheering on their teammates, right? Can you imagine that? The chick's been on the team for maybe two days and up to that point, and her solution to boost morale was to nag a room full of men about their lack of emotional support for their teammates. Yeah, I'm sure that's to blame for their 41-0 loss. I bet the coaches will cover that during the film, this week's film session. You know, if a woman wants to kick in a college football game, all right, the best thing a team can do, other than saying no, is to let the play unfold and allow them to get blasted like every other kicker during kickoffs. 
Now, if you want to do women a service, you got to show them exactly what it looks like when women play sports against men. All right? That way, you won't get stunts like this where a woman who looks like she's an Ivy League third boat rower filling in for a Title IX quota thinks she's setting a good example for other females by performing in a way that would get any other guy cut from the team. All right? I'm done talking about that shit. Now, one last thing I want to talk about real quick. It's probably a bit of a downer. All right. Uh, It's capital punishment. Uh, One argument that I've heard quite a bit uh, with regard to capital punishment is that people say that um, those who are pro-life should also be against the death penalty. Now, the entire premise of the argument rests upon dispensing with the moral distinction between the life of the unborn and the life of a murderer. And I also think that this is an extension of the logic that makes no distinction between murder and execution. Now, in the real world, I simply really, I simply don't see this as uh, a logically feasible argument against the death, pe- death penalty. And the reason is, um, is that our legal system, you know, we make distinction not only between things like manslaughter and murder but also degrees of murder so we treat you know different types of or circumstances of of killing other human beings differently through our legal system and granted not all things that are legal or moral and vice versa but i think it's in this case it is it is a very good reflection of those two things um, there's also a moral case to be made in favor of capital punishment. Now, I can understand if someone is just principally against capital punishment, okay, and I disagree, but I can grant someone that principle. Now, however, I would venture to guess that those same individuals wouldn't have been too upset had someone like Dylan Roof or Timothy McVeigh were killed by police in the process of their pursuit and apprehension, all right? Now, the best argument I've heard against the death penalty had to do with the incompetence of the state. Now, I guess if if we can't trust the government to make good decisions on most things, how are we going to trust them in situations like imposing capital punishment? But, now, unfortunately, it's the government's job to absolve the citizens from the burden of carrying out executions. So, I mean... In my opinion, uh, there are just too many instances where the death penalty is the only just sentence, and I have to let the government do that if I am to hold that belief. So, all right, well, that's all for for this week, or 10 days. I don't know how often I'm putting these out, but uh, I appreciate all of my tens of listeners, and I will see you or hear you next time. Good night, everyone.